What joy is this? The light shines. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In this season of Advent, uh, it is typically the prologues of uh, Matthew and Luke that get the most airtime. They occupy our time and our interest. They have more of the historical details, um, and often they're a bit longer too. This morning, however, it is John's Gospel prologue that we will be looking at and spending our time in. It is its rich depth of his prologue that, that we'll explore and continue as we continue our series on light. But before we do, let me draw our attention briefly to that which Kathy made mention and which I've already made mention of, that which we call Advent. As Kathy mentioned earlier, for those who observe it, This is the third Sunday in the season of Advent. So what is Advent? Actually, until recently, um, I'd heard the term, but I actually knew very little about it, other than it was perhaps associated with Christmas and calendars that might be filled with little boxes of chocolate goodies or nativity scenes that your children put very creatively together. I think there's... Camel on a star and wise man doing a headstand. Um, We put this up every year. It's been used for a long time. And we start at the beginning of December. Usually that's around about that fourth Sunday before Christmas. But that's really all I knew about it. That and maybe candles. Some church traditions have candles that they light as part of the service. Others just do it in their own homes. As Kathy said, this week, this Sunday, is the third Sunday, and it is the Sunday of joy in the Advent season. Well, Advent actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which is actually a direct translation of the Greek word parousia. And it's a word that means presence or arrival, coming, an official visit. And in the New Testament, it is most importantly referred to or used of Jesus' second coming. And it begins, as I said, four Sundays before and leads up to Christmas Day. And since the late third or early fourth century, then the church broad, uh, the church corporate, and also individual believers and families within it have often used these four weeks leading up to Christmas Day to prepare their hearts and homes, not only for the arrival of the baby Jesus, but also to prepare their hearts and to be reminded of the coming, the second coming of Jesus, and as they wait patiently for that. And it's that second focus on the second coming of Jesus that has often or frequently been lost of late, as Advent and and all that comes around with it um, has kind of come back into vogue somewhat. But for centuries, it was this twin focus on the, the first coming and the second coming of Jesus that was key to that season of Advent. Over time, each of the four Sundays did become associated with particular themes. And as mentioned, this theme for this third Sunday is joy. And as we spend time in John's prologue to his gospel this morning, exploring our current series theme of light, I trust that we will see that there is 
joy to be found in knowing that the light shines in the darkness. What joy there is in knowing that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, as anyone who's studied this prologue before, and indeed many of us were here five years ago when we worked through the Gospel of John and started almost exactly five years ago today with the prologue of John. I couldn't quite believe it was five years. It didn't feel that long ago, but looking it up on Sermon Audio, there it was. These 18 verses of the prologue are rich and dense with themes and terms that crop up again and again throughout the whole of John's Gospel. Now, my desire this morning is certainly not to try and look at all of these terms or themes in any great detail, but to use broad brushstrokes over the whole of the prologue and then perhaps to pull out the finer brushes as we look at and come across the terms and themes associated with light. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Unlike the other three Gospels, John does not begin his Gospel with an immediate introduction of the historical Jesus. Rather, he introduces us to the Word, or to the Logos, as it was in the original Greek. Not only in verses... Now, sorry, it is only in verses 1 and 14 of John's Gospel, and one verse in Revelation, Revelation 19 and verse 13, that that term, the Logos, is used and clearly applied to Jesus. It's made to stand out and indeed set the tone for the rest of John's Gospel. John actually waits until verse 17 before he clearly makes the connection between the Logos, the Word, and Jesus Christ. And so because of his emphasis on the word, it's helpful to unpack it just a little bit. I'd say at this point uh, that I found both Leon Morris's commentary and Don Carson's commentaries very helpful in my preparation for this sermon. And I've occasionally taken some quotes from both. While the term logos was frequent in use among the Greeks in that time when John wrote... um, and it was used as a sort of a philosophical term to define an impersonal and supreme principle of the universe, of far more importance to our understanding of how John uses it is the understanding of the passage in its Jewish background and for the Jewish readers. To the Jews, Logos was God's voice, his creative word. And the very first words of John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, would immediately take the Jewish reader back to Genesis 1. Of God speaking creation into being. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Or or Psalm 33 in verse 6, by the word of God were the heavens made. When God speaks, he does something. The Jews regarded the word of God as part of his nature and at times almost a personification of God himself. And it was always associated with an action or a revelation of God. John was using a term which was rich in background meaning and shades and it was used everywhere by Jews and Greeks alike. He could reckon on catching everyone's attention with his first words of his gospel, with this choice of term, But his use of it is richer and fuller and cuts across the the current understanding in a way that drew them in 
and was far fuller than either the preceding Greek or the Jewish ideas. For him, the word wasn't an impersonal and detached principle as it was for the Greeks. A living being and the source of life was John's, cos, uh, was John's Logos. John's Logos wasn't a personification as it was for the Jews, but a person, and that person, divine. In the beginning was the Word. And John's statement is claiming the preeminence of the Word. The statement in Greek is also sort of ongoing in its tense, literally meaning the beginning, in the beginning the Word continually was and still is bit of a mouthful it's probably not why they did it that way but but that is the sense and the thrust of it and the word was with God it's also made clear through the Greek that this is a word that is separate from God and yet there is an intimate relationship between the two and the word was God now we've grown up with that passage Got the concept of the Trinity explained in our uh, great statements of faith, books written about it. No matter how much we, or, or little that we understand the concept, the full implication of that first verse, we can't grasp all of it. But to the Jews, that statement cut clean across their understanding about God. You know, from the time that they were able to speak, they would be hearing and be reciting the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, hear the Lord our God. The Lord is one. John doesn't stop there. Just in case his words are misunderstood, he repeats himself in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. He. It's the first time that pronoun is, is used. The word is now defined as a separate entity beyond doubt. And by saying, in the beginning, again... John makes it clear that the Word always was. The Word was not and is not a created being, but was in fact equal with God and was God. The Word, the Logos and God are not identical but still one. Both God in relationship and intimacy together. So who is the Word? The rest of the opening passage deals with who the Word is and with the Word's relationship with God and also the world. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. John is clearly saying that everything owes its existence to the Word. Everything was created through him. God the Father has the role and, and the initiative in creation, as it makes clear in John chapter 5, but always through the word. In him was life, verse 4, and that life was the light of men. John here is making it clear that it is only because there is life in the word that there is actually life in anything else. This life is eternal life. This life existed before the creation came into being. Life that has no beginning and no end, for it comes from the one who was already there. This thought is clearly paralleled in John 5 and verse 26, 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Both verses insist that the Word and the Son share in the self-existent life of God, as Don Carson puts it. Jesus also goes on to claim that he is both the light of the world, John 8 and John 9, and the, light, and the life as well, John 11 and John 14. Both wisdom and Torah are commonly associated with life and light in the Old Testament. And John ties them both in with the logos, the word. Carson calls verse 5 a masterpiece in planned ambiguity. For a reader unfamiliar with Christianity, for for a reader who who hasn't yet worked his way through John's gospel either, it would be easy to see the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it, as merely referring to creation without any moral overtones. Light and darkness are not simply opposites, Carson continues. Darkness is nothing other than the absence of light. At the first creation, darkness was over the surface of the deep. Genesis 1 verse 2. Until God said, let there be light. At no other time than that first creation could it be more appropriately said that the light shines in the darkness. But any reader who has already worked their way through the gospel, anyone who has already come into contact with believers and spent time with them and who is now rereading John's gospel could not fail to see in verse 5 an anticipation of the light and darkness that dominates much of the rest of John's gospel. For John, darkness is not merely the absence of a physical light but the positive presence of evil as he makes clear in chapters 3, 8 and 12. The theme also crops up several times in John in 1 John chapters 1 and 2. Just listen to John chapter 3 in verses 19 to 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. For John, light is not only uh, revelation bound up with creation, showing what God has created. Light is bound up with salvation itself. And that first statement of verse 5, the light shines in the darkness affirms that the light of the word is now shining in the world. Now shining. It's a continuous sense. The light has been and is and will continue to shine. The second statement, the darkness has not overcome it, actually anticipates in its own way the rejection that will come in verses 10 and 11. But it refers much more to a specific event in the past. It has tried to overcome the light And it has failed. The true contrast lies in in the tenses of these two statements. 
On one hand, the light is still shining and will continue to do so. On the other, light, sorry, darkness has tried and failed to overcome. Where, of course, do we see darkness defeated once and for all? And the reader has to read on for another 18 chapters before they come to the death of Jesus on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, proof that death has been defeated, proof that darkness has not overcome. You know, the sun, the light of the sun was hidden as Jesus died on the cross. But the sun didn't stay hidden. The light of life continues to shine. Darkness was completely and comprehensively defeated. And while this is far from being a full exposition, this verse 5, of the reconciliation between us and God that is made available through the gift of the Logos, God's only Son, it is the first real glimpse of it in John's Gospel. And it is a statement that both offers hope and joy as well. I'm actually going to quote Ray from five years ago. At times, as we look around the world, it can seem a dark place. Sometimes we feel surrounded and perhaps even suffocated by it. Closer to home, we're often aware of the dark recesses of our own hearts. It is into such darkness that the true light of God shines, giving light and life to all who believe. Sadly, many prefer to stumble and hide in the darkness rather than to walk in the light. And to these, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Follow him, believe in him, and you will know with great relief and great joy that the darkness has not overcome the light. What joy to know that no matter what our day-to-day experience might be, that no matter what we observe of the evil that seems rampant in the world and often present in our own lives, that darkness has not won. What joy to know that the pre-existent word, God himself, who has life in himself, is the light of men And is still shining today. Now verse 6 moves on and signals the beginning of a shift in focus from the prologue's gradual revelation of who the Logos, the word, truly is. Up till now, the focus has been really on the large scale, has been upwards and outwards of the great realities of, of creation and the cosmos. But from here on in, the word is increasingly grounded in time and space. Now, the next four verses are, in fact, concerned with the witness of John the Baptist, the one whom all four Gospels testify to as setting the stage and preparing the way for Jesus' public ministry on earth. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light. 
He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. So in these verses, also in verse 15, John makes it very clear that the word was superior in every way to John the Baptist. And yet John is preparing the way for the coming of the Logos and the light into the world. Now at this point, I'm actually going to jump down to verse 14 um, before we come back to verse 10. For the first time since verse 1, we actually have the repetition of that term, Logos, the word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh. The great mystery. The incarnation. The word who was there in the beginning. The word through whom we all were created. Everything that we've seen and touched in our lives. Everything was created through him. The word in whom we have life and light. The word who was with God. Who is God. This word became flesh. Became human took on that which he had created and made his dwelling among us, or more literally, tabernacled among us. It's the same word that was used of the tabernacle, of God dwelling with his people in the midst of his nation of Israel as he led them through the desert in in the wilderness, having come out of Egypt. The word became flesh and chose to live to tabernacle as flesh and blood in the midst of his people. And verse 14 continues, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, as the reference to the tabernacle reminded Jewish readers of God's presence with them, so too these words are chosen by John quite carefully to directly echo God's proclamation of his own name to Moses up on the mountain in Exodus 34, 5 and 6 and 7. Uh, Carson actually spends quite a bit of time on this. I won't read it all, but, but listen to his summary here. The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him and sounded his name, displaying the divine goodness characterized by his ineffable grace and truth was the very same glory that John and his friends saw in the word made flesh. He uses the same two words that God uses to describe his name here in full of grace and truth. This word who became flesh was God who revealed himself by name to Moses. Where had John and the other apostles seen his glory most vividly? Again, on the cross. For it is there that the true glory of the word made flesh was revealed. Why would the true glory of the Logos have to be revealed on the cross? a symbol of shame and suffering because of verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. How great and sad and terrible are those words 
in the context of this prologue. The word, the great light for all mankind becomes flesh, comes to the world which he has created and which came into being through him, and yet he was neither recognized nor received. He is light, and he's not recognized as such. The whole world was his own. But even more so the nation of Israel, his chosen people, his own And they did not receive him. They had been given the special grace of revelation as the people of God. They had been given the light of the law and of the prophets. Those were the very ones who also did not receive him. While his own did not receive him, John makes it clear that not everyone rejected the word. Verse 12. Yet to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of god children not born of natural descent nor of human decision or of a husband's will but born of god if verse 11 proclaimed the great tragedy of human sin and rebellion against the word made flesh what joy is to be found in verse 12 For these verses are what give us hope. Not that wishful sort of hope, but that certain hope of something that will happen based on the knowledge that what God does, no one can undo. It's certain because every element originates from God himself. Look at verse 13. John makes it inescapably clear that God is the initiator and the perfecter of what he promises. Children born not of natural descent, not of human decision, not of a husband's will, but born of God. What else makes our hope certain? It's the fact that in verse 12 we read that the word, the Son of God, gave those who believed in his name the right to become children. It's a gift. The end of the story of the word becoming flesh is not man's rejection of him, but rather the astounding adoption of those who believe into the very family of God. The astonishing adoption of those and the giving of life, life eternal to those who had rejected the light and life. Earlier I asked the question, why did the words true glory have to be revealed on a cross? On the cross? Because God is a God of justice. He must judge and destroy the darkness. He must judge and destroy the evil which is present. Man's rejection. Our rejection of the word who is God. And it's only because the word took our place and bore the wrath of that judgment of what should have been ours that he can again give us the ability to become children and still remain just. Now, we don't need to worry about our ability to earn the right to become children of God. We don't need to worry about our ability to maintain our place and status as children either. Our adoption as the children of God was gift, born of his will, 
What joy and relief and security that brings. Even the maintenance of our status is a gift of God. Finishing up with verses 16, 17 and 18. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The focus here is on sort of this abundantly increasing grace received by those who believe. And there is a twofold meaning here, both abundance and replacement. Abundance in the sense that God's grace can never run out. Just when we think that maybe God's grace is getting to, to its limit, that, we can no long, that it can no longer deal with our sinfulness, with our rebellion, with our continual failures, we receive double the amount of grace that we had. This overabundance on top of what we had before, this, this overflowing grace, grace upon grace. But it's also a sense of replacement. The sense that while the law was given through Moses, and that law was indeed an expression of God's grace and goodness to his people, yet now it has been replaced. Perhaps a better word would be surpassed with the perfect and complete grace and truth that is now revealed finally in verse 17 to be Jesus Christ himself. He is the grace and truth revealed. He is the grace and truth that surpasses all that has been given before. So that in verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. He who is in the closest relationship possible with God the Father, that is the Word, the Logos, the Son, Jesus, as he was finally revealed in verse 17, he has shown us the Father clearly. And the final verse serves both as the conclusion to the prologue, but also then as the introduction to the rest of John's Gospel. Jesus' task as the incarnate Son, will be to make known his Father. If we want to know God the Father, we need only look at Jesus, his Son, the Word. Now remember the purpose of the book, as, he, as John states in, in chapter 20 and verse 31, but these words, all of it, the whole book, but thinking now this morning, these 18 words, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And that life is the light of men. In this third week of Advent, as we prepare to celebrate the coming of, of the word, the Logos, into the world, becoming flesh in 13 days' time, let me encourage us to do two things. Firstly, reflect on the joy. Reflect on the joy that comes from knowing that the light shines continually it is shining in the darkness it's not hiding the fact that there is still darkness for a time but the darkness has not overcome it it tried and failed remember and reflect that the light shines and that is our source of joy but secondly, also, remember and reflect not only on his first coming, 
Reflect on his second coming. The fact that that is when darkness will be shown to be defeated utterly and completely for every eye to see and every knee bow. His second coming, which we still wait for with eager anticipation and with joy. And to help us do that second part, I'm going to finish by reading from Revelation chapter 19, the only other passage that speaks of the Logos as he prepares for his second and final coming. Verse 11 of 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a, dro- in a robe drip- dipped in blood. And his name is the Word, the Logos of God. The armies of heaven are following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written. King of kings and Lord of lords. That is the word of God who we celebrate the birth of in 13 days time and whose return we await with joy.